right, guys, let's turn to the uh, Me Too movement. If you're on any kind of social media, I am sure you've seen the hashtag Me Too. Two simple words. Me Too. Me Too. A hashtag does not create a movement. People do. To understand the origins of one of the most vibrant global movements in modern history, meet the woman who coined the term. The words Me Too did not come easily to her. She had to fight with herself before she could say them out loud. And doing so set off a chain reaction of radical empathy. Empathy between survivors was the tool we used to build power. Being able to say, I see you and you see me and we understand each other and we're not alone, it's a movement. That's why I went viral, because there's so many of us. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Today, Tarana Burke, a community organizer trained by historic civil rights figures, a New York Times bestselling author, and a survivor. We discuss how she built a grassroots movement and she admits that when Me Too went from intimate real-world convenings to the internet as a hashtag, she got scared. I immediately went to playing small. I was overwhelmed by the visibility and the attention and everything, and I really shrunk. To recover her place in Me Too, she had a realization. If it all went away tomorrow, the thing that I would carry with me is that I do not have limits except for the ones I put on myself. Mm. That would have sounded like kumbaya nonsense to me before. <laughs> Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Just a heads up here, this interview includes the discussion of rape and sexual abuse. Tarana Burke just wrote a memoir, Unbound. And in it, at the beginning, she gives a detailed description of the first time, not the only time, but the first, she was raped. She says she does not tend to talk about it. She put it on the page because she wanted the facts to live in one place where they would be known and she would not have to repeat them. It happened when she was seven years old. She lived in an apartment complex in the Bronx, New York, the daughter of a protective stepfather, Mr. West, and a loving and strict mother. One of the things about, you know, I think kids who grow up in the inner city um, or, in, you know, urban communities, whatever, grow up quickly, have to grow up really quickly. And unlike some other people who experience sexual violence and don't tell because they think they won't be believed, I, I had the complete opposite experience in that I was clear that my mother and my father would believe me and that there would be consequences. They would they would take action. In a way that could harm them. Could harm, yeah. For, for certain, Mr. West, I thought... Your stepfather. My stepfather, yeah. I knew where he kept his pistol at seven. I knew exactly where it was hidden in the house. And I just didn't 
I already felt in that short walk from when it ha- where it happened in two buildings down from me back to my building upstairs in the elevator, the shame had already engulfed me. I did something wrong. This is me. I messed up. I'm a bad girl. I don't want something happening to him because of my badness. And so I didn't tell. Seven-year-old Tarana decided not to tell her parents about the rape. There was the shame she mentioned. There was also the fear that her stepfather would take revenge, harm the teenager who raped her, and end up going to prison himself. While Burke does not name the alleged perpetrator, she does say he went on to become a police officer and has two daughters. She saw him as an adult 10 years back when she was 38. Mm-hmm. It was a Father's Day event back in the Bronx. You were visiting your old neighborhood. Yeah. We were out in the park, and we run right into him. And I, I actually ran into him by myself. My mother was there, but she wasn't with me at the, at the exact moment that it happened. But I was, like, looking for her because I just wanted to get out of there because it's so interesting. I saw this person who I probably had given at least... 30 seconds of thought to every single day since I was seven years old. I could think of very few days where it didn't pop up at some point, something, some little thing. Mm -hmm. And this person was standing there staring right through me as if he had never seen me before in his life. Hmm. He didn't recognize you? No. Did you speak with him? No, 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 no. I didn't say anything to him. I just went to my mother. I found my mother and she was like, what's wrong? You know, she could see in my face. I was, she's like, what's the matter? And I said, he's here. And then I just said, I want to go. Can we just go? And, you know, she could have had a lot of reactions in that moment because it was our little reunion and we hadn't, she hadn't seen her friends. And I had only told her a few years before what had happened to me. And instead of her saying, why don't you go on the other side of the park? Maybe you won't see him or... I'll go talk to something. She didn't do any of those things. She just responded, let's go. And we left everybody. We walked out of that park. We left everybody. We got in a cab. You know, we held a cab on the street and we just left. Mm. And it was, this was a way that she showed up for me. That was just, it just was exactly what I needed in that exact moment. And I had had many occasions for that to happen. With your mom? With my mom, or really with anybody, but certainly with my mom. And she, I just knew, I knew instinctively that she got it. Because in the cab, I said something like, he didn't recognize, maybe he didn't recognize me because it's been so long. And she said, no, he didn't recognize you because you turned out to be this smart, accomplished, beautiful, blah, 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 whatever person. And he tried to take that from you. And I was like, my mom gets it. You know? Why not publicly out him? You have status today. You have a platform today that you did not have as a child. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I want to have that fight at this stage. I can say to survivors all the time, your number one job is to survive. And I have survived. And that's not to say that won't change, but right now, that's not the fight that I want to have.
As a teenager, Tarana Burke was an avid reader and also had quite the attitude. She got to channel her fiery energy into a cause in high school when she stumbled onto an opportunity that would forever change her life. On a school trip to Washington, D.C., she learned about the 21st century youth leadership movement. Created by veterans of the civil rights movement, it was a training ground for young people. Burke joined. She started a chapter at her high school. She led trips to the group's headquarters in Selma, Alabama. I met John Lewis when I was a teenager. I met Rosa Parks when I was a teenager. I met Coretta Scott King when I was a teenager. We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. This is no time for business as usual. These were the kind of people we were exposed to very, very early on to learn from. And how did you feel in that environment as a teenager? Oh, great. It was this organization and the young people who I interacted with, they made me feel powerful. They made me feel like my voice mattered, that I could change things right now at 14, 15 years old, that I could impact my future, my community. And that was just a great feeling because I had felt pretty powerless before then. Mm. You connected us with one of your longtime friends and mentees, Celeste Faison. Yes. <laughs> I forgot that this was the child with the program that was doing it. Oh, yeah. Get careful the Rolodex you hand over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she talked about it as well. She came into 21st Century Youth Group, and she talked about how you became the third adult in her life that she ever confided in about herself being raped. Mm. And she says, you were the first to hug her, to hold her, as opposed to threaten and punish her for it. And I felt free, you know, like, not necessarily empowered yet, but like a chain was was literally like lifted off of my neck um mm. and so Tarana not only taught me how to organize but like her and this other sister would take hours and just talk to me and told me to go see a therapist like really guided me on my healing journey that was just for me that's my little muffin <laughs> I love her so much. I remember us going into that room and she had that conversation and it was just, it almost felt like redemption because of the situation I'd had with heaven. The situation you had with heaven, mm-hmm. heaven being a, a girl, uh, not the celestial body. No, and no. <laughs> heaven. That's the name of another girl who sought out Tarana's help at the same youth group. It was years earlier. Tarana was in her 20s. Heaven was 12. After a summer together, Heaven mustered up the courage to say for the first time that she had been raped. And your response was? I kind of ran. I didn't physically run, but I I sent her away to talk to somebody else. And I was the person, the one adult at that camp who she really trusted, who she really felt connected to. And of course, because she was a child, she didn't understand why I was not able to hold space for her. And I was in awe that this brave little 12-year-old girl Mm -hmm. 
knew to hold me accountable for who I said I was. Right. Mm. All she was doing was following through with what I said. I said, I care for you. I said, I am an adult who you can trust. I said, I love you and I want to protect you. And she said, okay, well, hold this for me then. And I said, no, I can't. Mm. And I was very ashamed of that. Why couldn't you hold it for her? Because I had not really created my own space, right? I had not unpacked the things that happened to me. I had not ever said me too. I just, it was too much. It was too close to what I had experienced. Um, I had never really told anybody my own story. Like at that, at the point when heaven said that, I, very few people in the world knew what had happened to me as a child. Mm-hmm. And she was so direct and raw that it was like dizzying, right? It was like being bombarded with these both the sadness for what happened to her, but the triggered memories of what happened to me. Mm. And I just, I just didn't have it. I didn't have the thing. And I think that's important for people to know because we are in a moment where people share very openly and culture has shifted in a way that that's acceptable now. And everybody can't hold your story. Everybody can't pick up what you're putting down. And I just couldn't at that moment. I didn't, I didn't know better. So how were you able to shift from pushing away this child who was confiding in you to opening yourself up to start receiving these stories nonstop from these little girls coming to this camp? I think if anybody can tap into what it feels like to disappoint a child, right, to... And I think in some ways I disappointed the child inside of me too, right? I... She revealed that 12-year-old that desperately wanted somebody to ask me questions. She tapped into the the seven-year-old that was really afraid and wanted somebody to know, but didn't want to be exposed as a bad girl. All of that came flooding back. But in reality, the other thing she did was hold a mirror up to, for me. And I had to look at myself and say, you have stepped all the way out here. You are leading this leadership camp and talking to these young people and setting yourself out as an example of, right? Mm-hmm. I, I was often used as an example in 21st century as a successful leader. Mm-hmm. I had done all my work, whatever the levels you had to go through, I'd done all that. I was a board member, a junior board member. I was held out as an example of this is how the program works. And I was not facing the reality that I, all of that achievement came because I was trying to stack the deck. I wanted to stack the achievement so that people would not ask me questions, would not delve into or look into the the, the dirty, ugly underbelly of what I was holding, the secrets I was holding. You really think that's true, that the drive to be such a, a strong, high-performing leader was in part compensating for how horrible you felt inside? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think that we make a real... It's a, a lot of people misjudge and mischaracterize survivors and what survivorship looks like because we have been trained for, you know, all the Lifetime movies and Law and Order episodes tell us to look for the scared girl, the quiet girl, the girl who might be harming herself, the girl who is, you know, her, her personality has shifted a bit. But very, very rarely do we talk about the overachieving kids. The ones who are perfectionists, the ones who take on too much, the ones who 
blame themselves when their grades drop. I was that kid. I wanted to do anything in my power to be good. Mm-hmm. And 21st century gave me a, a way to to show up and be a leader. Now I'm a leader. Because I also didn't feel like a victim or a survivor. I felt like I had done something bad. So I'm just trying to pile on these things to cover. You felt dirty from your own experience. Absolutely. And I and I wanted to pile on as much as I could to cover that dirt. It's like putting perfume on after you come from playing out outside. <laughs> you try to cover the smell. But without the shower, yeah. Yeah, without yeah. taking a shower. It's there. The funk is there. <laughs> but yeah, I think that was the case why I couldn't hold space for heaven because my success wasn't really real. My liberation, the thing that I felt at that moment was performative. It wasn't, I had not dug in and done real work. Mm. Ms. Burke, I've never thought of um, the archetypes of survivors that way before. What Mm. you just said is really opening my mind. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. I hope other people, that clicks for other people too. In terms of (laughs) taking a shower before putting on your perfume. (laughs) How'd you do it? Well, it was so jarring to be exposed in that way. Mm-hmm. Because what she really did was expose me to myself, mm-hmm. right? The performance was over. I could not fake it anymore. The good counselor, the great mentor had failed this person because she was the first one to ask me something outside of the... Outside the script. The script, exactly. And so it caused me to say okay, you have said that you want to do this, right? You want to work. This is the population you want to work with, little black girls. And I had been in enough of the sessions that we had that caused her to come forward where I'd seen all these little black girls talking about what they'd been through. I'd seen my peers do it. I just didn't tell my own story. So I started saying to myself, what do I need to do to be ready to do this work? I literally was just like, I just want to feel better. I just don't want to feel like this. I don't want to feel sad secretly when I go home, but put on a smiling face. when I'm, I don't want to do that. I'm just tired. And that led me to at least start asking questions, right? Hmm. And it led me to go back to the question that, that Maya Angelou had opened up for me some years before, which is, can this body hold joy? At the same time that it's holding this pain, will this pain ever go away? Can it be replaced? Like it, started, it just started making me ask and explore these questions because I didn't have the answers, right? I didn't know anything about anything, but I just knew I wanted to feel different. Mm. And then I got pregnant and it really shifted for me because I wanted to protect my daughter from having the feelings that I had. I didn't want to pass that stuff on. Like, you know, all of these old wives tales that I had about what goes on with you while you're pregnant gets passed on to your child. And I was like, oh, I really got to get myself together because I don't want to pass this on. <laughs> a lot of intergenerational trauma to pass on right here. Oh, yeah. And so then it's interesting because one of the most decisive steps you took is you break up with your child's father. Mm -hmm. 
he, you write about this. Yeah. As you describe it, forced himself on you when you were pregnant and clearly didn't want him in that way. He had his own needs. He had his own emotional roller coaster. And after that, you cut him off from your life. Yeah. Yeah. That what happened legally can be considered sexual assault. I know I walked away feeling violated. His framing of that is completely different Mm -hmm. because so many men's understanding of consent is tied to patriarchy and misogyny and the ways that they've been socialized. But yeah, it was it was definitely a violation. Mm -hmm. My highest goal was to make sure that my daughter, my child had a different life. Now your assignment is really, really clear. Mm. This child's life has to be decidedly different than yours. Tarana Burke felt such a deep connection and gratitude to the civil rights community she met as a teen that she decided to move to Selma, Alabama to become part of it full time. And over the years, one very notable feature that became apparent in this community was that there was a high degree of tolerance for men and boys behaving badly. As Tarana Burke's friend Celeste Fasson told us, there were regularly instances during summer camp, for example, when teenage boys assaulted girls. And then how it was handled was like, mediation between the two or they both got sent home or like we don't throw people away so so in not throwing people away we actually don't hold people accountable there's really idealistic notion that like (laughs) like we could just do like some like transformational justice you know some hoodoo voodoo and then it will all be good Yeah, the way we came up in 21st century, the elders were going by how they had been raised and socialized to deal with it in the outside world. There's a lot of focus on protecting Black boys, but I just think there was not an analysis that was broad enough to deal with the reality of what sexual violence does and is and how, you know, nobody has the sort of silver bullet on how to handle it perfectly, but it certainly shouldn't have been handled differently than than it was. Why was there so much emphasis on protecting black boys and not black girls? Listen, if we could solve that uh, that problem, but I do think that I don't remember the years, but there was this lots of research that came out sort of in the nineties around like the endangered black male, right? Black man is an endangered species. Mm-hmm. There was this real push to start like black schools for black boys. And, mm-hmm. and I think just like misogyny and patriarchy works in any other instance in and outside of the black community, um, women get erased, Women and girls get left behind and get erased. And so, I mean, we saw it even looking at the Obama administration when they started the initiative for black boys. The Obama administration launched My Brother's Keeper, a public and private initiative in 2014 to create opportunities for young men of color and to address their needs. Thank you. And black women had to raise up and say, wait a minute, what about black girls? Mm -hmm. You know, and so... 
everybody in the world is focused on boys. All the programs we had that were popping up were boys, boys, boys. And I was just like, I want to work with girls, mm-hmm. our girls. Before Me Too became a global movement, it was the two syllables Tarana Burke needed to say to herself and out loud. The clarity that came after that was, this is number one, your assignment. Number two, nobody else is coming to do this work for you. So it is time to step up and to be vocal about this. This is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hey, hey, listeners, this is your host, Artfi here. Just a reminder, if you want to stay in touch and start getting exclusive invites to connect with our illustrious guests and with me, your host, please sign up for the Art of Power newsletter. Go to wbez.org slash AOP newsletter. Thanks. The moment that inspired Tarana Burke to say me too is an unenviable one. It's the moment most of us hope that we never reach, the moment when the rules of one's community conflict head-on with one's own values. In 2004, a man named James Bevel came to Selma to build a school for Black boys. Bevel was a prominent leader in America's civil rights iconography. He helped to strategize and initiate the Birmingham Children's Crusade, the Selma Voting Rights Movement, and the Chicago Open Housing Movement. And the whole point was of walking from Selma to Montgomery, it took you five to six days. We will be informed and we will be educated. God bless you and God keep you. And he is also a child molester. Yeah, and, and rapist. Mm-hmm. People should know, and this is all of this stuff is easily researchable. Bevel had a long reputation for sexual misconduct throughout the movement. Mm-hmm. John Lewis writes about it in his book, uh, I think it's Walking with the Wind. There are no shortage of stories when you talk to people who are in SNCC or SCLC about things that he's done. So it was sort of an open secret. When he came to Selma, it became quickly clear that he was like a cult leader. When Bevel moved to town, rumors flew around about his inappropriate behavior. Tarana personally got creep vibes from him. But there was no concrete proof of anything criminally wrong. Until two years later, one of Tarana's mentors, an older woman, got a letter. She got a letter from a group of children and family members of Bevel telling her who he was and what he had done. And what the letter said was that he had raped his daughters, several of his daughters. Mm -hmm. And the most poignant part of that letter was that they had been in contact with local leadership and they had sought help and nothing came of it. Mm -hmm. And so your mentor received that letter and how did she respond? 
she and I, she showed me the letter right away and it we put the pieces together mm-hmm. from the letter and realized that the leaders in the town who we loved, who we followed, who we trusted, knew that he was a pedophile. They held something like a community court mm-hmm. and he admitted during that proceeding that yes, he did commit these acts against his children, his daughters. And they knew that and they didn't ring the alarm. And you have to know that this letter came in April of 2006. That community court situation happened in January of 2005. Mm -hmm. So a year and a half had passed, a year and a half of him being in the community, a year and a half of him running around in the wild. Right. Having access to children, blah blah blah, um, and it just it just kind of cracked me wide open. What does that mean? How did it crack you open? Knowing that Bevel is who we thought he was, and having it proven, and knowing that he, the kind of exposure that him and his minions had, it all it just <laughs> it was just a lot. It was too much. What did you do? At first, I went to get help, other help, not from the the community leaders, but from like the local rape crisis center and the guidance counselors at the school. It didn't work. You left your bubble. I left my bubble for sure. And then I started to write. I started to just say, okay, well, what did I need at 12? What could somebody have said to me at 12 that would have shifted my thinking, would have altered the way I thought about myself? And I started writing that down trying to craft like a workshop and it came to a head kind of quickly that I was still performing to some degree. I was still trying not to deal with my stuff, but forge ahead with this mission that I was on to save these girls. And I just had not done enough work. I hadn't tried to save myself. And once I had this, some people call it dark night of the soul <laughs> uh, moment. I was able to really have like, I think it just sort of cleared my thinking, but it also, it gave me literally the name me too. And I had to go into my own story and pull out the things that I needed and bring them to the girls. And like, does this help? Would this help if you had this? And they just, immediately was like, yes, Miss Tarana, yes, Miss Shanta, like this is what we need. So you basically cracked open with the Me Too curriculum. If I had to say that in a different way, besides crack open, it was it was more like clarity. It was here is real clarity. Nobody is coming to save you, right? It's that moment. It's the moment you you are the June Jordan, we are the ones we've been waiting for. It is mm-hmm. I don't have answers. I can't get answers from them. I'm going to have to, there's one of the same elders from this group says, and I repeat, I quote him all the time. You have to take what you have to make what you need. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened in that moment. These are not the people who are here to help you. These are not the people who are going to save you. You are here to help. Yeah. The clarity that came after that was, this is number one, your assignment. Number two, nobody else is coming to do this work for you. So it is time to step up and to be vocal about this. Because it also felt scary. 
I had a vision that I was pulling together in my mind for like, why don't we organize around this? Why don't we, why aren't we in grassroots organizing and building cohorts in our communities? Like I had all these ideas and they felt, I felt scary a little bit to put them out in the world because I thought people would shut them down. Mm. All of that went out the window. Mm. And then we, we, we put the page about what the work we were doing on MySpace just to have like a website and then people started responding to that. Yeah. And then it was like, okay, we're on the right track. In 2008, Bevel was convicted and sentenced to 15 years in prison for having sex with his then teenage daughter. Less than a month after his sentencing, he was released on appeal. Soon after, he died of pancreatic cancer. What's the very first instance you used that term? Me too. Um, back in the day, it used to be, or maybe you can now, there's a website called Custom Inc. Mm-hmm. And I had thought of the name. I went on Custom Inc. and I created a T-shirt. And you, you used to be able to create the T-shirt and see what it might look like on a person. So I created it. I took a picture of that. And then I emailed it to my friend. And I was like, what do you think about the name Me Too? Because we had started doing the work around sexual violence, but we didn't call it anything. And she went, oh, my God, this is crazy. This is going to be huge. This is, uh, you know, she was. And so that was it. I had these black folders that just said Me Too on the front. Just information about what we were doing and how you can sort of do workshops in your community. And people on MySpace who would reach out to us, we would just mail them out to them. We would just send them out to people, you know, all over the country. And that's how we first sort of publicly came out as this campaign. This is the Me Too movement. And then I would just beg people to set up at their events, which was really strange now that I think about it. They'd be like a community fashion show and I'd have this beautiful table set up in the back with our t-shirts and our postcards. And people were like, oh, what's this? And then I'd start talking. They'd like, oh. Okay. <laughs> I think I just want to buy some earrings, you know? I, was like, <laughs> I can imagine that. You're like, West Indian Day parades going on. Like exactly. <laughs> I would be in the back. I'm in the back. And our table was always beautiful because we bought these like pink crystals and we would put them all over the table. And I had this beautiful signage. And the shirts just say me too. So people don't know what that is, yeah, you yeah. know? And they were always drawn to our table. Like, oh, this is so nice. What is this? And I'm like, can we talk to you about sexual violence in the community? <laughs> I'll be right back. (laughs) Me Too went from a conversation killer to a global movement in October 2017. This morning, two more women have come forward accusing media mogul Harvey Weinstein of sexual assault. The fallout from the Weinstein scandal is reverberating in countless other industries. The New York Times and The New Yorker both published articles detailing sexual assault accusations against Harvey Weinstein, a powerful Hollywood producer. Days later, actress Alyssa Milano, known for her roles on Who's the Boss and Charmed, posted this on Twitter. If all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. In just one day, according to Twitter, there were over half a million Me Too tweets in response. Your reaction to when Me Too becomes a hashtag Mm. and goes (laughs) crazy global viral is not... Yes, finally, people can have awareness. <laughs> Your reaction was total frustration. Oh, yeah. And fear. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. I just, I just had seen too many instances of black women's work being co-opted, women of color being erased completely. Um, and then the names that were coming out, like Gwyneth Paltrow and so-and-so, you know, all of these famous, famous uh, actresses. I thought, this is a wrap. These white women get it. It's over. <laughs> it is over. It, is, it no longer will be connected to anything I'm doing. What is the contrast you're making between what Me Too meant for you versus what it means once it goes viral? What Me Too meant for me in that moment was a community-based movement to bring healing and action around sexual violence to marginalized people. And what I thought a hashtag would do was blow it up real big, make it about just like harassment in Hollywood. I also didn't know sort of the depths of what some of those survivors had been through, but sort of make it about harassment in Hollywood um, Make it about Harvey Weinstein and not the little girls of color who have survived. And how is the life of Gwyneth Paltrow or, or you know, uh, Ashley Judd going to connect to the little girls and little boys and the, or even the adults who come from the communities that I served? I just didn't see how it was going to connect. So it was. I didn't put this in the book, but I, I at one point I remember calling my girlfriend April saying, I just maybe I'll just come up with another name. Hmm. I'll just do my work under another name. I'll call it empowerment through empathy. And, you know, hmm. and she was like, what are you talking about? You've been doing this forever, everybody. Or what about the people who already know me too mm-hmm. through you, mm-hmm. you know? And I was like, I know, but I can't fight this. It was so frustrating. How did you claim your work back? Yeah. So... <sighs> I had, you know, I write in a book about going through this stress and then reading this woman's story online that was a a bit of a wake up call for me. It was a woman who had, you know, put hashtag me too and then a link to her blog that told her personal story. Mm -hmm. And my assumption is this is a white woman. I just from the things that I read and I'm, I'm mentioning that because Somebody I had no connection to, let's just say, right, based on what I read about her life. But her story of being assaulted on college on a college campus, not just the story of what happened resonated with me, but at the end, she basically said what she had experienced this day with all of the hashtags and watching people say me too, made her feel less alone, and it was that that I I just needed to hear that. God knows where to put messages because I needed a reality check that said, mm-hmm. this is, you keep talking about losing your work and your work is literally happening in front of you. <laughs> like this is the work. What else is there to do? If, if a million people tweeting out me too is not a call for you to, you know, if I was a doctor on call, it's like walking through a train wreck or something and saying, well, I'm an oncologist. Mm-hmm. And so I... To call after consulting friends. I don't want to act like I just sort of magically pulled it together. <laughs> My friends helped me um, get some perspective and pull it together. Explain that a little bit. How did your friends help you to pull it together? Well, one of my girlfriends is very direct, Dr. Yaba Blade. She's one of my best friends. And 
she listened to me kind of sob on about like, I don't know what to do. And the white ladies and the white, you know, (laughs) and she was like, okay, but everybody that knows you and that's a significant amount of people knows that this is your work. So why not just put it out? You have the same internet they do. Again, I immediately went to playing small. Playing small. Yeah, right. I just, my mind told me everything I know about the way the world works. There's no space for me. And it's a lesson I try to tell people now. Because what I did was I put out a video that was from like 2014 of me giving a speech, wearing my Me Too shirt, talking about what Me Too is. And Me Too is a movement to, among other things, radicalize the notion of mass healing. I put that video out. I put out a series of tweets. I made a post on Facebook and Instagram. And I asked my friends to share it. And they shared it and shared it and shared it until it went viral almost on its own, right? Somebody, hundreds of people tagged Alyssa Milano until she was like, oh, wow, I didn't know you existed. Let me correct. You know, she immediately course corrected and said, hey, this already exists. And what I learned that what that taught me and is the lesson I try to teach other people now because it's, it's one we need to get quickly. I still get people who say to me, oh, my God, me too. The white people co-opted your movement. And, and I said, you know what? Hashtag me too is not my movement. Hashtag me too is not a movement. The Me Too movement was amplified by this hashtag. The Hollywood actresses and all, they were not trying to start a movement. They were just trying to tell their truth. And so when I came along to say, hey, this is a movement. This is what it means. This is what how it works. People paid attention and said, oh, tell me more. Because they were not trying to co-opt it. They were not trying to take it over. But what naturally happens is that people gravitate to these people because they're famous and they're blah, blah, blah. And so what I experienced was a lot of them deflecting back to me and saying, I don't know about the movement part. I'm just trying to survive. But talk to this woman because she's built something. Oh, you found yourself becoming a resource for people who didn't know what to do beyond share their story. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what helped. And so nobody tried to co-opt or take it. But we are socialized to respond to the vulnerability of white women. And so that just kept happening over and over and over and over. And it still keeps happening. What's the lesson in power there? That your power is yours, right? What I was, what I was willing to do was relinquish my power. My power doesn't lie in the validation of the media or social media. It lies in the accomplishments of getting these survivors to see themselves. It lies in getting people to understand that organizing is possible around sexual violence. And so what happened when Me Too went viral is I got scared. I was overwhelmed by the visibility and the attention and everything. And I really shrunk. And I realized that this is what we do generally, right? We will diminish our own power. We will relinquish our own power. And so when the people say to me, white women uh, co-opted your movement, I said, you cannot take from me what is mine. You cannot remove my assignment from me. That's nobody has the power to do that. This is the thing that I was given. This is the place that I, where I'm supposed to be, what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm just trying to do my work. 
Mm-hmm. Your relationships from survivors haven't been severed. Your decades of understanding this journey. None of that has changed. There, there are definitely challenges that I've, that I've um, mm-hmm. encountered in the last four years, without question. Um, but just like I've encountered sort of challenges that I never thought I would have, I've also tapped into a a power, if you will, that I didn't realize that I had. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't allow myself to dream big enough about my work, about anything really. But like, mm-hmm. I did not see myself as being able to impact mm-hmm. a pop culture narrative before. And I didn't also understand how important that was. I didn't allow myself to, to add that kind of work to my vision for the movement because I just didn't think it was possible. Now you have... I don't have limits. Yeah. Even if, if it all went away tomorrow, the thing that I would carry with me is that I do not have limits except for the ones I put on myself. That would have sounded like kumbaya nonsense to me before, right? <laughs> it would have. I'm just not a, I'm not a person that's like moved by, you know, platitudes and things like that. But it is true. And I'm like, oh, shoot, that's really true. Mm-hmm. I don't set limits for myself. I don't think, I think anything is possible, including impacting the end of, like seeing the end to sexual violence. And so in a way, the hashtag cracked you open too. Yeah. Yeah. It did. The 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 virality of that hashtag and watching I, how big it got cuz I also would have I remember telling a friend um I would never have created a hashtag. I wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. The limit for me would be the care for people, right? I don't have the type of infrastructure to care for the people that might respond. But the flip side to the hashtag is that if that if it was never created, we would not have known how ready we are to tackle this as mm. an issue on the national and international stage. Mm. It, it would still be something that we would like pushing a rock up a hill. And so it definitely did crack us open a little more. My lessons from Tarana Burke. One, if you want to lead prepare yourself to hold others' stories. That means confronting your own ghosts and demons so that when people share theirs, you are ready. Two, when other people start building on the groundwork that you have laid, you don't need to flee or start over. Claim your calling. Claim your assignment. Three, if you're working on something big, you don't have to control it so closely. Sometimes the dam breaks open and you are pleasantly surprised by the flood. Get out there and canoe. This episode of Art of Power was produced by Justin Bull, Paloma Moreno-Jimenez, Hina Shrivastava, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. If this episode landed for you, broke your brain, moved your heart, gave you chills, hit subscribe. Leave a written review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends and family. Let me know what you think directly on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Arthi411. A-A-R-T-I-411. See you next week.
get out there and canoe. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. All right. I tried. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.